Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is construction industry veteran, Janet Bates. Janet is the Client Solutions Manager at J.E. Dunn Construction out of Charleston, South Carolina. Janet is also a founding member and the immediate past president of the Palmetto Chapter of the National Association of Women in Construction, or NAWIC. She is also a member of the Charleston Metro Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors, Leadership Charleston Class of 2021, a member of Commercial Real Estate Women of Charleston, the Urban Land Institute, and the Charleston Metro Chamber of Commerce Regional Policy Council. Her work with NAWIC has garnered her national recognition as the NAWIC 2019 Future Leader of the Year. She holds her MBA in General Management and Sustainable Enterprise from the University of North Carolina Keenan Flager Business School and her BA in Theater and Dramatic Literature from the George Washington University. She is also a graduate of the Tuck School of Business Bridge Program at Dartmouth College. So you've been busy, Janet. (laughs) I know hearing that back to me, it's like, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. So many women in construction and other male-populated industries, myself included, started out in something totally different and then ended up in their industries and, you know, are absolutely at home in their work now and loving it. So I love that you started out in theater and dramatic literature at GW. Did you enjoy that major? I did. Yeah. Construction was definitely not part of my life plan. I knew absolutely nothing about it. I always wanted to be an actor. I mean, there are home videos of me pretending to be Madonna from a very young age, um, like singing and flipping my hair around. And I still believe firmly that my training in theater is something that I utilize every single day. So it was absolutely not a waste. I loved doing it. Went to college for it, moved to New York and pursued it for a couple of years before I realized that that was just not something that I wanted to keep doing. It's exhausting. It's one of those things where you have to really love auditioning and I don't. So I was spending a lot more time on my day jobs, you know, the jobs that help you pay the bills. In between auditions, I was managing a bed and breakfast and I was managing a gap. And I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed customer service. I enjoyed talking to people and eventually realized that just killing myself on the audition circuit was not my life goal. And just went a completely different direction, ended up at business school and accidentally fell into construction. (laughs) Well, so tell us, so you were in New York, you were auditioning, you're working. At some point you were like, this isn't fun. This isn't my life school. And you decided to go back to business school at that point. So I moved back home with my parents. I did that like existential crisis moment in your 20s and (laughs) moved back to my hometown. Uh, That's when I ended up at the Dartmouth Tech School of Business Bridge Program, which is an excellent program for liberal arts majors who are trying to transition into the business world. So it covers everything, human resources, marketing, economics, um, everything you could need to know to get sort of your feet on the ground in the business world. It'll give you that. From there, I ended up working at a company called Fathom in Hartford, Connecticut. They're a brand management agency. 
and learned everything about brand marketing, storytelling, logo design, project management. And right before the recession hit, so that was 2008, I made the decision to apply to business school. I knew that I was working for a very small firm. I still wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew that I needed to grow and decided to apply to business school. And man, was that good timing because then the recession hit just as I joined school. So I kind of got to hide out for two years, which was nice. But then we were also all interviewing for internships and it was a really difficult time. There were not as many internships available and I was coming into business school as a former actor. (laughs) So I'm competing against these phenomenal classmates who have years of experience under their belt already. Thankfully, I was really used to rejection and I used to be told that a lot by my classmates that, man, acting is coming in handy here. Like you're the only one who seems fine after all of these interviews and everyone else is like crying in the hallway. Yeah, I was just like, we're just going to roll with the punches. A regional construction company in Orangeburg, South Carolina was looking for someone to help tell their story. At that same time, they interviewed about seven different interns from different schools and they knew they had a good story, but they didn't really know how to tell it clearly and concisely. So they hired me. I came in for my summer internship and ended up joining them full-time for almost eight and a half, nine years. So I was there for quite a long time. And that was my introduction into construction. I ran marketing, moved into business development. And then in February of 2020, I left and I joined JE Dunn. I was going to say, because when you joined them, you were really joining as a marketing person, which is a little bit different from an MBA, but you did have that background in in literature. So um, it made sense that they would hire you to to tell a story. Did you feel like that was... Right. And I had worked at that. I do. I had worked at that brand agency. So just the general understanding of how to form a story, how to develop a tagline. It was just a lot of listening, right? So it's just the customer was the employee as I'm sitting there listening to why they work there, what it means to them, who this company is. And that's how I developed that brand. It was a lot of fun. It was really creative. It was a wonderful, is a wonderful company, incredibly family oriented. And I had a ton to learn because again, I knew absolutely nothing about construction and was suddenly pitching it (laughs) as as the brand. So it was a very learn by doing experience. You know, they were wonderful. I actually moved away, left South Carolina with my husband when he was transferred. He was in the military. So we moved to Tyndall Air Force Base. That's where my daughter was born. And still continue to work for them, you know, remotely. So it was sort of that intro into remote working that we're all very familiar with now. And when I came back, ended up moving into business development. I found that a lot of what I was doing in terms of telling that story was in-person networking, having coffees, meeting with people. And I wanted to do more of that. So I became the director of business development and marketing for my last year and a half when I was there. And then J.E. Dunn found me and they were looking to expand their presence in Charleston. They had a team here, a small team. They had done a handful of projects and had committed to making this their next big office. And they needed a business development person, boots on the ground, you know, who woke up here. I do believe that you can manage business development from afar, but actually getting your business development to be successful in a market, you need to wake up where you are and start pitching it there. And so I joined them three weeks before the COVID shutdown in South Carolina. So that was awesome. (laughs) I still haven't met a whole lot of my coworkers in other offices, but I've met them all on the computer screen. Do you think that helps to have boots on the ground, even if you're doing it remotely? I do, because thankfully I already had 
that network built, you know, if I, I think if I had gone into a different market and had joined them in, you know, Denver or something, I would have been totally lost in the middle of COVID, unable to get out and meet people. But because I already had sort of my little black book, I just switched my story. So I, I would join these Zooms wearing a J.E. Dunn baseball hat and everyone was was like, wait, what? You changed jobs? And I was growing my hair out too. I had this little pixie cut. So the baseball hat came in handy for the length of COVID. No awkward hair days. It was awesome. So then tell us a little bit about your job at J.E. Dunn now. What are you doing? So I am responsible for what we call client solutions for the low country region. So I sort of casually say I'm from the coast up to about where 95 hits. And we've got a Charlotte office, Atlanta and Savannah. Those are my three closest offices in the East region. So we overlap a little bit depending on location. JE Dunn builds everything that goes vertical as long as it's not condos or wood. So I have the opportunity to really go after whatever makes sense for my team, our region and this market. So we have built healthcare schools. We're doing a nine-story concrete multifamily with retail on the ground floor, right on the peninsula of Charleston, which is really exciting. Got a big tower crane up with our name in the sky, which I love. (laughs) And I have an incredible team. They are crazy passionate about what they do. And they're also insanely passionate about each other, which I love. It's this warm, welcoming, challenging environment where you know we hold each other accountable. We go after our goals and we really, truly believe in humble, hungry, and smart. Those are the people that I work with. And those are the people who work well in this team. And we are going after whatever we can go after that makes sense for us so that we can grow this office for this company. So it's a lot of fun. I spend a lot of time drinking coffee and <laughs> having lunches, which I love. I drink a lot of coffee. It's my only vice. So I um, I have a lot of coffee with people and I get to know incredible individuals who are making very big differences in the Charleston community. I get to be involved in the chamber board and their regional policy council. So I'm learning a lot about how our region is growing and how we can you know best help that happen responsibly. Charleston has a lot of very big issues that it needs to confront, not the least of which is affordable and attainable housing and infrastructure (laughs) flooding. (laughs) That's a fun one. And we need to be involved in those solutions. So it's a really exciting job that allows me to represent my company in a variety of different ways and ideally build a whole bunch of really awesome stuff in the process. I can definitely hear your passion and your voice. And I had seen you gush about a crane. (laughs) gives me life. (laughs) So really well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's not a surprise that you've been also very involved with the National Association of Women in Construction. And you've spoken about the importance of changing the face of construction and also what you have called the long game. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? Absolutely. You know, construction in the last 10 years, 10, 11 years since I joined has changed. What construction looks like has changed in terms of who is doing it. It hasn't changed at the pace that I would like, but but it has changed. My goal is to keep pushing for that face of construction to change. But I recognize that the work that I'm doing today is going to make a difference for my children and for their children. So I'm probably not going to see the big changes that I want to see. So I am playing that long game. Construction has had a labor issue since at least 2008. (laughs) And we're going to continue to have a labor issue that hasn't changed. We need to make 
construction appealing, trade work appealing. I know that you talk a lot about that and that these are very high value jobs and and we need you. We need people in trades, men and women. So my goal is to go out with women from the National Association of Women in Construction and speak to you know elementary school kids, not about being a woman in construction, but just about being in construction so that it becomes very normalized for them to see women out there working in this industry. I want both boys and girls to know that that's normal. I think, you know, having focused, I have a little girl and a boy, having focused so hard on making girls be a quote unquote allowed to like boy things, we've moved the needle for girls, but we need to do it for boys too. We need them to understand that A, that's normal and B, they can like whatever they like too, right? So we have to do both. And I think getting out there and just showing them some power tools and pictures of really gorgeous buildings and talking to them about what we do just as normal construction people makes a difference in their lives. And the next step is we got to talk to the parents. We got to make it normal for parents to know that their kids can be in this industry. And like, listen, I'm in business development. I'm not in the field. I know some amazing women who are. I want women in every single role in construction because the more that we have in every single role, the more chances we have of getting into the C-suite, the more equity there is in the C-suite, which means the more equity there will be for all employees in every role. So you're saying that not only do we have to get into the schools and talk to kids about trades and approaching construction from the trades aspect, but we just need to normalize it across the board. Like we need to talk to parents and children about the industry in general and not just like, yes, I think it's a hugely important thing to get people aware of trades as an option as opposed to colleges. But you're saying that in addition to that, we also just need to normalize the industry. I really think we do because so often parents, whether they mean to or not, are going to influence their child's decision on, you know, which career path is considered acceptable. And if a parent, for whatever reason, believes that a trade work is dirty or below their child, their child's going to know that. And they can go to every career development day and learn about masonry and plumbing and being an electrician. But if they come home and their parents like, ugh, why would you want to do that? You should go to college. (laughs) It's like, well, you're influencing them to make a decision that maybe isn't right for them. And I'm a very big advocate for post high school education, no matter what it is. I think everyone should go pursue what they want to pursue. And if college is not right for you, please don't spend $65,000 a year going to college, go find, you know, a trade school or an apprenticeship program that can teach you that trade that you want to learn, but you need your parents' support or you know, your guardian support or that mentor who's in your life, whomever it may be. So I think we have to normalize it for parents. I've heard these crazy stories about, I've heard this from men in my industry, who's like sister talks down about construction to their kids. Like, oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and her brother's like, hang on a second. I do that. <laughs> like, what's the problem? <laughs> you know? So there is still this prevailing feeling that working on a job site is dirty work. And I don't think that that's a fair representation about what my team does. I totally agree with that. It's so important to let people know about the options and that there's so much that they can do with it. But what about the people who do want to go to college? Like, how can we expand their, you know, their horizons and their knowledge base about the construction industry? Maybe they want to go to college and they want to go on that MBA path like you. And the reason I'm asking this is because of all the women I talk to on this show, 
either usually the ones in construction, they usually or any male populated industry, really, they usually either do it because their parents did it and their family did it. Or they say, wow, I never expected to be in this industry. But you never hear like, oh, yeah, you you rarely hear. I shouldn't say never, but you rarely hear like, oh, yeah, I just I discovered this career. I, it was my path. I chose it myself. So that's, I think, the the group of people that I'm thinking of, like, how do we mm-hmm. get to them and teach them about this industry? Absolutely. Like I said, I, we need women and minorities in every role within the construction industry, right? So we need accountants and lawyers and marketing people and business development, human resources. And construction has its own challenges unique to its industry in all of those roles. And I think that by continuing to speak about... First of all, this industry is huge. <laughs> like There's so much going on. And to go out and talk to people who are interested in real estate development or law or marketing. And you don't just have to work at a law firm. You don't just have to work for a marketing agency you can go work for a corporation. And I knew that growing up. My dad was in human resources and organization for a very large company. But it was still, for some reason, it never occurred to me to say like, well, hang on, I could be in marketing in not just an agency, but like I could go work for, I don't know, HP and (laughs) do their marketing. We talk about brand managers as an option in marketing, but we don't really talk about like construction or manufacturing or any of this. And just showing them how cool the industry is. You got to be passionate about the product that you're selling or the product that you're helping on a legal front. <laughs> you know, like you got to care about it. I think that the more that we can talk about this industry and normalize it as one that is exciting, is modern, you know, is growing, then the more we'll have people interested in joining this industry again not tomorrow, but 20, 30 years from now. And I do think it starts with going out to schools and doing career days and getting involved with organizations like the Urban Land Institute, where you have real estate developers talking to kids, if it's like they're doing the ULI urban plan, for example, that's an important component of construction is understanding development. Where does the developer get their money? You know, What is a pro forma? How are you going to work with that developer to ensure that their goals are met while actually building it on time and on budget? Being able to understand all of the components of the industry starts at a young age and would just create so many more quality employees in all of these industries, quality developers, you know, quality architects, et cetera. So let's go out and join those organizations that are doing that work from a real estate development standpoint with kids and bring the construction perspective and show them like, hey, I'm I'm not just banging a hammer on a job site, we're part of building a $80 million concrete building. This is what it looks like. Cause that's cool. All right. Well, we're speaking about going to schools and talking to kids. So speaking of children in Charleston, you have been working with your chamber of commerce on the childcare industry. And now this has, I mean, this has always been a huge women's issue, but even more so I think with COVID and how things have been over the past couple of years. So can you talk a little bit about your work on that and why it's important? Absolutely. I, really was not confronted. And this is my privilege speaking here. I was not confronted with the inequity in the childcare industry until COVID. I was fortunate enough to have a really well-paying job and I could afford childcare uh, for my child. My husband is now retired. He's a disabled veteran. So now that both of my kids are in school, I don't worry about after-school programs. My husband takes care of them. In the middle of COVID, when we were all stuck in the house (laughs) and trying to do 
homeschool. I have a 15 year old and a six year old. So at the time it was ninth grade and kindergarten, which is two very different teaching styles. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's very, and parenting styles. It's very interesting. <laughs> I was doing some research and just, you know, listening to different podcasts and reading the news about the fact that this was very much a women's recession and women's equity has always been incredibly important to me. I consider myself a raging feminist. This was making me very upset. And as I dove more into it, I began to learn about just how broken this childcare system was. I started bringing it to other individuals' attention through a program at the chamber called Thrive, which is the women's networking group. And I did a presentation on not going back to normal because how many times did we hear, let's just get back to normal or I can't wait to get back to normal. I'm terrified of going back to normal because normal wasn't working. I talked about the need for workplace flexibility, for valuing you know, actual productivity and quality of work versus visibility and time at work. And I talked about childcare and how we've been relying on schools for a lot more than education and then just the fundamental breakdown of that industry. And it really sparked something with the attendees at the meeting enough that I kept researching it. And I was part of an amazing program called Leadership Charleston at the chamber. Um, I know lots of different chambers have this program where you get to really dive in to the different aspects of your community. And at the end of that program, the chamber's government relations employee came and spoke to us about what are we going to do with all this knowledge? And what are we passionate about? What do we want to do next to help continue to grow our community and to fix these issues that we have in Charleston? The Charleston Chamber is amazing, by the way. Can I just say like they're incredible and they do really, really good work. And that call to action, I mean, I immediately raised my hand. I was like, I got something to say. And I told him I wanted to change childcare, that I was really concerned about our ability to solve even things like attainable housing and transportation without also focusing on the childcare industry. And it's this big, huge, gigantic problem that has so many different components to it, both you know, with the government, legislatively, different government programs, different benefits programs. Then there's also companies that have to get involved. It's a public-private issue. There's also a whole facet of the industry of home care where you know, you're relying on your mother to take care of your children or your next-door neighbor. And I looked at him and I was like, I don't really know where to start, but I know that we need to start somewhere. And I got to set up a meeting with him and the lobbyist for the chamber who um, sits in Columbia, South Carolina, to talk about the legislative side of it. And we formulated a plan there. And we're going to continue to keep in touch as things move in Columbia. And then I got to sit down with the workforce talent individual. She just actually just started the chamber. And between her, myself, and our government relations team, we started formulating a plan to move childcare to the forefront of the discussion with the chamber. So. I'm doing a bunch of different research. You know, the Treasury just put out a huge report on it. I want to read the studies that they read. We're going to start talking to different businesses about the need for childcare, equitable childcare, talking about, we always talk about 30% of the income as being for housing and transportation, that that's like the, the level that it should be at or under. Why don't we add childcare to that? Childcare should be at 7%. Go ahead and do the math. Promise you're paying more than 7%. It should be at 7% of your income. So how do we get that into the discussion, right? I don't want to hit anybody over the head with it. I want it to be this organic conversation where we show them the research. We show them why this is good for business. There is a business case for childcare in terms of productivity, lower turnover, 
you've got, you're playing the long game again. I love that phrase by ensuring that children are getting a head start to school socialization of children as well, that if people want childcare, they should be able to receive it. And I like to use the military as an example, being a, a military wife, uh, the military's childcare system is incredible and it's on a step basis. So depending on what rank you are, that's how much you pay. So, you know, the amount you pay increases as you get promoted and as you're able to afford more, they are qualified teachers. They go through rigorous training. Their facilities are clean and safe and Again, rigorous training on the facilities, like they have lots of safety checks and everything. Now, yeah, it, we as taxpayers pay a lot for that because it's a mission readiness issue. So my husband can't deploy without knowing that his wife and his children who are at home are safe and well cared for and that everything is okay. He can't focus on the mission without knowing that that's taken care of. So they recognized that's a mission readiness problem. We have the same issue in the business world. Our employees cannot focus. They cannot be there 100% at work. If they're concerned that their kids are unsafe, are homesick, maybe you have to leave them home alone, God forbid, because you have to get to work. Our businesses need to recognize that we have to value care. And this is also not just a childcare issue, but let's just add in elder care. Our generation, more than any other, is going to have to deal with elder care as well. Again, it's so big that I think it's so easy just to say like, oh, forget it. It's someone else's problem. And I mean, I, I agree. I feel that way a lot because <laughs> it's really overwhelming. But if we don't talk about it, if I don't keep like beating the dead horse on this one, then yeah, I am just giving up and letting someone else dictate how this is going to look for women and men from now on. And I might not be able to change the world on childcare, but I can hopefully plant a couple of seeds with a couple of businesses to make a change for their employees. And if I can do that, then I did something. Are you approaching this with the goal in mind of having businesses create the childcare systems within their companies, or is it more of a state or local childcare organization system that you're thinking of? Yes. All <laughs> 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 these up. Yeah. So it's, that's the thing is it, it is a public and private solutions, right? So, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of taking a look at those government benefits that people receive depending on, you know, their income that go towards childcare. I think part of the problem is that when you start to make just enough, you know, just a little bit more, those benefits go away. But just because you're making a little bit more doesn't mean you can afford childcare, especially if it costs 25% of your income on average. So what we need to ensure is that those benefits like step down as an incentive to continue to grow your career. I also think that, you know, universal pre-K, I know that South Carolina is looking at that for, I believe it's ages three and four in sort of lower income disadvantaged schools, but we need to roll that out. We, again, we just need to normalize this. Let's start somewhere. I'm really passionate about just get it in. Let's start somewhere. Let's see how it works and let's continue to expand it. There's also a huge opportunity for businesses to step up and some have. I mean, you look at, you know, like L.L. Bean and Patagonia and Google, they have childcare, but their employees also make a lot of money. And those childcare facilities are very expensive because you're paying for having your kids on that campus. I can't have a child on a construction site. That's not a possibility. But, and you know, like you look at the food and bev industry, which is huge in Charleston and is suffering in just such an immense way, as I know it is elsewhere as well since COVID. Like a restaurant on the side of King Street can't afford to have a childcare center. So I want to talk to them about cohorts. You know, how do you, do you team up? I mean, in large groups, there's power. Can you team up 
and talk to a child care center and provide a benefit as a team for an employee that you subsidize part of what they're paying in order to go to that center. And then it's guaranteed it's there. And not only is it there, but it's there the hours that they need. Food and bed workers don't always need eight to five. Healthcare workers certainly do not always need daytime hours. And hospitality is the same, you know, and there's a difference between front of house and back of house with hospitality and, you know, what they're making. Are they hourly? Are they salary? You need your rooms cleaned in order to get people in, but you got to provide them childcare. Team up with your competitors and, and get a, you know, get a childcare facility and your employees will be loyal to you for doing that. But again, it's about having to pitch that business case and talking as my government relations employee at the chamber told me. His name's Scott Barheight. He's a very smart man. Pitch it to Scrooge. If you can convince Scrooge that this is important, then you'll win. So that's what I'm working on. And I think I've said long game a couple of times now, but this is part of that long game as well. You know, I'm not going to solve this tomorrow. There's a lot of very, very smart people, much smarter than me, also working on this issue. And I just hope to bring the issue into the conversation in Charleston and keep pushing it so that we don't forget it needs to be solved. Well, it sounds like you're making you know, huge impact already. You're doing it through the childcare work that you're doing and you're doing it just in general in your community and, and through your work. You mentioned to me that you got sober three years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that taught you about yourself? Oh, everything. <laughs> yes, I did. So I quit drinking three years ago. Alcoholism runs in my family, but I spent a very long time convinced that it could never happen to me. And you know, I didn't hit rock bottom. I didn't have that moment of, you know, man, I have to quit or I'm going to lose my family or anything like that. It was, it was just this moment of clarity that I wasn't living the life that I wanted to live. I was actually driving back from a job site when I, when I had that moment and I started very slow. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my husband. I just said, Hey, I'm just going to do 30 days. And Lord knows how many times I had done 30 days of not drinking prior to that. But he was like, you know, he was like, okay, we, we don't have to talk about it. It's fine. And during those 30 days, I just spent a lot of time with myself trying to figure out what was making me so scared to quit. And I also spent, I had just started working out. It was very unhealthy, which if you're drinking that much, you tend to be. So I had started working out with a group of women from constantly varied gear. I found these amazing leggings and I had to buy them for working out and ended up in their Facebook group and now on their app with these incredible trainers who are just like really blunt and will just tell you like it is and say like, you just have to move and get out there and do what feels good for your body. So I started their workout program. We actually built a CrossFit box in my garage right below where I'm sitting right now and just started to use that as my release and my therapy. And I still really believe strongly that working out is very important to my mental health. But in doing that, I was confronted a lot with the anger that I had towards myself over not living the life that I wanted to live, that I I had these wonderful visions about who I wanted to be and what I wanted to achieve, but I was absolutely terrified that I wouldn't and that I wasn't who I thought that I was. I have since had a lot of conversations. When you say you weren't who you thought you were, what do you mean? I was really scared that I was, I had this vision, I guess, that I believed that people perceived me as like this party girl, which I'm sure they did. And not very intelligent that I was maybe getting by that. It was kind of a joke. It was a lie. I had always been very scared of that, that I was, you know, I think going from acting into the business world, I've sort of felt like a fraud and 
felt like if I stopped drinking and started just being who I was, they would figure it out. And I've had a lot of conversations with my husband since then where he has had to tell me, and he still does quite frequently, that I was never a fraud. I I was always the person that I am today. It was just, I was covering it up with a lot of stories that I was telling about myself. No one else was telling me those stories. I was allowing myself to hear them from the world because I believed them. I had very low self-esteem. I felt like a failure in multiple areas of my life, you know, that I had failed at acting. I was definitely not doing well at work like I should be, that maybe I wasn't this incredibly empowered woman that I thought that I was, that I wasn't a good mom. And when you stop drinking, you have to just be with yourself and your feelings. And it's awful. (laughs) But if you can push through it, what I have found is that those feelings don't go away and everybody has them. Everyone has self-doubts and questions and they'll still raise their ugly heads or rear their ugly heads multiple times. But I am much more, I'm aware of them now. And I can kind of like, I look at them and I'm like, yep, I see you. I see you really nasty thought. You're going to go away now. Like I see you. I'm validating that you're here, but I know that I am going to mess up. I know that I don't have to be perfect and that I'm very strong and successful even when I fall down. And it's still a journey. It will always be a journey that I'm on, but I think by going through it, it has allowed me to speak up a lot more. And even when I'm terrified of speaking up, to be a voice for women, to be a voice for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and to just speak up even when it's so uncomfortable and scary and know that even if I fall down, I am still safe because I can go to bed at night knowing that I did everything that I could. And when I drank, I couldn't go to bed at night. It was part of the reason why I drank <laughs> was because I didn't do everything I could that day to be the to be the, a person who could go to sleep feeling comfortable in, in their own skin. Janet, congratulations on all the work that you've done on yourself and getting sober. It's great to hear that you're healthy and we're really happy about that. Thank you so much. Well, there are a lot of reasons I wanted to have you on the show today, but This interview really actually started in the Hazard Girls Facebook group. We were having a discussion about our morning routines and productivity. And I think you kind of blew people away with yours. (laughs) Why do you think routine is so important? Well, what's so important about routine, Janet? So I, I live by routines. They are comforting in a world of chaos. My days very frequently go pear shaped. But I know that I can rely on, I know it's a great phrase, isn't it? Pear-shaped is fantastic. (laughs) Um, I know that I can rely on starting my day well and ending my day well, right? It's like, I'm forgetting the name of the military man who who said, just make your bed in the morning because then at least you've done one thing, right? Like you've gotten something achieved. And I have learned from this phenomenal time management expert, Laura Vanderkam, about, you know, the most successful things that people do like before breakfast and at night and at work and all that. And I have learned that morning routines are the time for you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise get done in your day, but that are important to you. So it can be for your mental health, for your physical health, for your kids, whatever it is that you need to get done. Like we have to carve out some space for ourselves to be able to do that. And self-care is a super fun buzzword, but it's true. Like this is part of self-care. Self-care is not just like spas and working out, although that's very important. So my schedule in particular is never the same any day. 
I sometimes work from home. I sometimes work at the office at a business club or at a coffee shop, or I'm meeting people. I'm driving all over kingdom come. So I have to understand what hours I have in my day to get things done, whether it's work or personal or NAWIC. And I also have to make sure that the things that I need to be my best self and to show up for the people who are important in my life to show up well, I know that I need to journal a little bit to plan my day. I need to know what's ahead, what's ahead in my week. What are my goals? I need to work out. That's a very big one for me. And I need just some space to recharge. So I am what's known as an introverted extrovert. Um, I love being around people and I can do it a lot for a very long time, but I have to, like, when I get home, I close the blinds and I'm done. And so I need space on my own to recharge. So I have to make sure I plan that because otherwise it's just never going to happen. Life is too crazy. And I know that if you make plans, God laughs, but I don't think he's going to laugh at my routine plans. So I also think that you're changing your routine. Like don't try to force a routine that doesn't work. So I think when I responded to that post, I was meditating as part of my routine. I am not doing that now. I wanted to try it and I'm really bad at it. (laughs) My brain does not stop moving. So instead I do something called ROMWAD, uh, which is range of motion WAD. So it's like 20 to 30 minutes of very deep stretching with the benefit of, you know, for range of motion in my workouts. And I have a really bad back. I'm in physical therapy for that. So this is part of my healing and my mobility and all of that. So that's the first thing that I do. Now, this does not always happen. Like right when I wake up, I have two kids. Most often I wake up when they wake up. I'm not a morning person and I'm just not going to force that. Like that's a dumb idea. So I have a cup of coffee. I either help my kids get ready and my husband takes them to school or I take them to school one or two days a week and give them a break. I like it because I get to talk to them and otherwise I would not know what's going on in their day. And when I get home from that or after they leave for school, I pour myself a cup of coffee and I plop myself down on the floor and I'll do that 20 minutes of stretching. It's an app on my phone, so it's really easy. My dog and I just sort of hang out in the living room and get that done. Once I'm done with that, I head into my office, which is right in my house. It's right off of our main room. And I'll journal for a little bit. I'm trying to get better about sort of journaling about big ideas and big thoughts versus my teenager really pissed me off today, which is also (laughs) feelings that need to come out. (laughs) I'll do that too. And then I'll read. If I have some time, I'll read maybe a whole chapter. Um, If I don't, I'll just try to get in a couple of paragraphs, but I'll pick a like personal or professional development book. So I just finished Brene Brown's Dare to Lead, which was delightful and took me much longer to read than I thought it would because I was just reading like a page at a time every morning. But I got it done. It was fantastic. And now after that, I'll pick up my planner. I cannot live without my planner. And I have tried so many planners. Like November and December are my favorite months of the year because I will go to Staples and just look at planners. (laughs) So So you're you're still a paper planner? You're, You're still a paper planner person? I am. I need to write it down so that I know what's up. Now, it also has to be in my phone. I have two phones. I have a work phone and a personal phone. I need to put my work phone away on the weekend and or if we go on vacation. Otherwise, I will not disconnect. I just know that about myself. So that's why I have two phones. But my work phone has everything in it. Like that is my main calendar. It has my family calendar connected to it. It has my NAWIC calendar connected to it and then my work calendar. So that is the one that I live or die by. So that's my on the go. Like, can I take a meeting? Can I do something? Every Sunday night, I'll sit down. I use a full focus planner. So it's a beautiful book. 
and it's a quarterly planner. So it really helps you focus on your goals just for that quarter. You still set annual goals. I'm very big on goal setting. I love it. As my husband says, it drives him nuts, but I'm constantly trying to improve myself. So it's, I will always set goals and then you break them down by quarter. You put them into this planner. And then every week I sit down on Sunday night and I say, okay, did I achieve what I needed to achieve last week? What didn't get done that I need to roll forward? What are my top three goals for this week in order to achieve those big annual goals that I've broken down quarterly? So then you just got to keep breaking everything down until you get to like a daily goal. And then I'll plan out my whole week. So it's, you know, what do I have going on? I can write it down on the calendar page. What are my top three for the day in order to move me towards those top three for the week? And then what else just needs to get done? I have a problem in that I love to-do lists and I love crossing them off. I will write things on to-do lists in order to cross them off because it (laughs) makes me feel good. But I have learned by using this planner actually that I have to take care of the top three, right? Like even if they're big and hairy and gross and I don't want to do it, if it's written there, that means it needs to get done and everything else being equal, like my day will be a success if those three things are done. So I'm very, very conscious and intentional about what I put on those three. And everything else kind of goes to the bottom. I plan my workouts. They are in my planner, written down that I'm going to do it at this time. And then I transfer it over to my phone. It is an appointment that I make. Again, I have a really flexible schedule because I, except for like some company meetings and stuff like that, I really set who I'm going to see and when. I choose if I go into the office or to the business club or work at home. And I'll choose when I work out based on that, like based on my work schedule. A lot of times it's at lunch or like right at five o'clock. I plan what we're having for dinner on the weekend. It's all, I know when my husband's cooking, when I'm cooking, like I just need all of that mental space freed up. And this helps me do that. It helps me make sure that I'm not missing anybody that I, you know, that I've talked to everyone that I need to talk to. And it also, I like this planner because it gives me a full page that's blank for notes every day. And I take a lot of notes. If I'm talking to someone about a project, I'm definitely writing things down. It helps me kind of gather that parking lot of ideas And then each day I can move them forward to the next day if I need to, if they're to-do items, or I can move them to next week and like just jot them down and make sure they're already there. And then I don't have to worry about it. Future me will worry about that particular task because I won't forget about it because it's there. It's written down. So yeah, planning and routines are one of those things that I personally would not be successful without. It reduces my anxiety. It frees up that mental space and it allows me to approach each day from the most effective part of myself. I need to check out this planner. We're going to put that in the show notes so people can can take a look at it and see what it is. Well, Janet, where can our listeners find you if they want to get in touch with you? Instagram is the best place to find me. It's at Janet R. Bates. They'll probably see another account, but that's my private one. So please um, follow the public account, Janet R. Bates. I post everything there. Everyone can follow me. I would love to connect with you. Send me a DM. I'd love to chat. Well, we definitely have a lot to learn from you. I love that you are in the Hazard Girls group and that you've shared some of your experiences there. And I hope you continue to do that. And we really appreciate you taking the time to share your work here on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I have been following you for so long and I'm just incredibly excited to be here chatting with you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.